my name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today we return to a topic that is constantly requested, big screen comedian failures. That's right. This is our third big screen comedian failures episode. Many years ago, we did an episode where we talked about Tom Green. Tom Green and Norm MacDonald. You see, they're not all movies we dislike. It's like the, the idea of the episode is comedians who had one big shot at cinema, comedians who came out guns ablaze, and this is their vehicle and it didn't work out. So we did that first episode, Tom Green, Corky Romano, all that stuff. Then we did another one a little over a year ago about SNL alumni who didn't quite make it, like Pat, for instance. Who can forget Pat? Remember Pat? (laughs) And, And now we've decided to turn our attention to the country of our birth, the country where we live, work, and play, Canada. Now, when you think of Canadian comedy, what comes to your mind, Will? Bob and Doug McKenzie. Mm hmm. Uh, Russell Peters, of course. I mean, for yeah, a lot of people, much. yeah. But probably Jim Carrey, he escaped from Canada. That's the thing. When you we talk about Canadian comedy, we're talking a lot of times about people who were so successful that they could not be contained by the narrow confines of Canada's horrible arts industries. Yes, that if you have any success and you want a career out of it, you must escape and go to America. Uh, your only other option here is to, I guess, know enough of the right people to eventually get your own CBC show. And as long as you have a bit, you just keep repeating that bit over and over again. Well, we'll get to that later in this episode. But first, let's start with some Canadian comedy royalty, because we're talking about a movie called Going Berserk. Okay, so a little peek behind the curtains. We needed a three movies for this episode. We had two locked down, and then we spent a week haggling over. Well, we didn't haggle. Out. I was like, Will, how about a Howie Mandel vehicle? <laughs> and I said anything but that. <laughs> So I spent a week trying to figure out what could be what could be better than that. I mean, the other one on the table was our classic corner gas man, Brett Butt. He had a movie called No Clue. Yes. So we thought about watching that. But then I got a movie. I found a movie that I thought would be perfect for the podcast. Famous last words. It's called Going Berserk from 1983. And this is a movie that stars some people who, you know, some people who did have big screen success. But not in this combination. It stars three people from arguably the greatest, at least the most well-respected Canadian comedy show, SCTV. Yeah, SCTV, Kids in the Hall, the rest. That's it. (laughs) It stars John Candy, Joe Flaherty, and Eugene Levy. Now, I wanted to watch this movie because this is such an SCTV movie. Like, it's not it's not Uncle Buck or something. This feels like a direct extension from the SCTV universe, made by a lot of the people who worked on SCTV. It was even directed by a guy named David Steinberg, who he also directed The Wrong Guy, which could have been a, an entry in this, because it stars Dave Foley, if we hadn't already done that for a Patreon episode. Yeah, so David Steinberg is a Canadian legend. I mean, mostly a behind-the-scenes legend, although he did have his own show at one point, and he was also the number two most regular guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson as a a stand-up. Wild. But he's also a director, and he's directed a ton of episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm, ton of episodes of many TV shows, not too many feature films, but he did this one, The Wrong Guy, and a Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen movie where they play soccer. So he's the perfect guy to harness this kind of energy. John Candy in his prime, Eugene Levy in his prime, Joe Flaherty. Presumably in his prime. prime. (laughs) Basically at the same level that he will always 
always be for the rest of his life. So early in this movie, they make a reference to Melonville. The movie is like set in Melonville. And I thought, OK, alarm bells are ringing off because that's where that's the fictional universe that the TV network in SCTV was. And if you don't know what SCTV was, you I mean, you probably do. But just for the sake of formality, that was kind of like Canada's Saturday Night Live. It was Canada's Monty Python. You had John Candy, Rick Moranis, Martin Short, Catherine O'Hara. That great generation of people were on it. Hollywood looked at them and went, uh, I don't know, supporting roles, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Rick Moranis, you master of impressions. And if people don't know, you know, Rick Moranis, he's the nerd in the Ghostbusters. Everybody loves him, but he can do anything. You watch SCTV, he plays a million characters. He does probably the all-time best George Carlin impression. <laughs> so good. When he came to Hollywood, they're like, you can do that nerd guy. And after a couple movies, he's like, all right, I'm done. No more of this for me. John Candy obviously had a good career more or less like he became a big star i mean you look at the films that he started and you're like woof but he has uncle buck and you only need one really big one that everybody loves planes trains and automobiles exactly. and uh eugene levy yeah. <laughs> people love space faults. yeah eugene levy doomed forever to play supporting roles but in the christopher guest movies he's pretty much the co-creator with christopher guest so this movie came out going berserk came out in 1983 and it took a long time for eugene levy to become a sort of star joe flaherty never really became a big star certainly getting back to why i wanted to watch this movie i wanted to see what was the attempt to translate the sctv sensibility into a movie i mean monty python got movies and were very successful at it certain of the early snl movies like the blues brothers were able to capture a certain early snl sensibility and translate it to film but this movie has less than no reputation anyone who has seen it has said you know like Werner herzog you must never watch this and we're here to tell you that we agree with those people yeah i did want to have a revisionist take i did want to say that this movie was this good. film has to be some kind of tax fraud <laughs> scheme because there are no jokes scenes will just end it does have the sketch structure that something like monty python on the holy grail has i only figured out like 30 minutes in that it had that structure <laughs> really? so, okay so the plot it stars john candy as a uh, limo driver named John, and he's engaged. <laughs> Classic to- Jackie Chan yeah. business. <laughs> and there's a theme song where there's a lyric that's like, and then there's Big John, the candy man. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, okay, they're they're going all in on this being a John Candy vehicle. So anyway, he's a chauffeur who's engaged to the a senator's daughter, and he comes from a working class background. Classic she's, Marx Brothers setup, right? Yeah, she's famous. There are various plot strands. There's a cult that's led by Richard Libertini, who folks may remember as the fruit salesman from Popeye. And don't forget that isn't his dad, Commissioner Gordon himself. Well, he plays the senator. Yeah, yes, the senator, yes. but uh, who's going to be John Candy's stepfather. That's right. Uh, Pat Hingle. Yep. Uh, Eugene Levy plays an oily movie studio guy. Oh my god. And this is some of the worst shit I've ever seen. <laughs> so, like, the big joke of Eugene Levy's character is he made a film called like, Kung Fu U? Kung Fu University. And all all the guys starred in it and you see a clip from the movie and if you can think like the worst comedy out of this concept you're gonna watch five minutes of it like <laughs> this is like throw this in a fire so no one can ever see it again so as the movie was going along i did figure out okay this is a string of this is a string of sketches gags, basically. Yeah. and I, I was not prepared for that the movie initially presents mm. as 
just a normal comedy. Yes, that's right. Uh, but that's not what it is. With that ugly brown sheen <laughs> that all 80s comedies have. Instead, it's a bunch of random gags, scenes just end. There's a lot of weird optical transitions as if the filmmaker's like, well, I don't know how to get out of this. So let's just flip the screen to the next scene. Scenes that don't have jokes. Mm-hmm. Well, they have a they have a premise, but they don't have jokes. I wonder it if of... it's that the director and the creative team were like, listen, we got these three funny guys. They can hold this movie up like they can just do their thing. Well, there's no consistent tone in the film because you've got John Candy, who's sort of an amiable goof. But then you've got Eugene Levy doing this really hammy shtick and various characters who are in various different realities in the same scene together. And also, like the production values are really bad. Uh, You look at the Monty Python movies and there was a lot of work put into a lot of care put into the the mise-en-scene of the films. In Monty Python and the Holy Grail and in Life of Brian, there's a comic tension between how sort of realistic or convincing the settings are and how absurd the comedy is. Whereas here, I don't know, it just looks like kind of a shitty 80s comedy that some people are wacky, some people aren't wacky. There's no consistent tone to it. I like to say sometimes that a movie has no jokes and my friends will always be like, there's jokes. You just don't laugh at them. This is a movie with very few jokes. Like, Well, we've got a mo- another movie coming up that has even less jokes. So. <laughs> so this film is an example of just not understanding the strengths of like the core people and utilizing them in any interesting way. My prescription for this movie, this movie that came out 40 years ago and that, <laughs> yes. and that everyone's dead. Yes. My prescription is <laughs> Eugene Levy's like, I'm not dead. Lean into the sketch comedy more. Lean into the absurdism. Really make it just a bunch of wacky off-the-wall sketches with only the barest plot threading them together. Yeah, well, that didn't happen. Didn't happen, and it won't won't happen. happen. Rest in peace, John Candy. We love him. So let's fast forward to the year 1997. Now, this is a movie that I feel like when we were at the perfect right age to be advertised. uh, You know what? We were maybe a little bit too old. Eight years old is how old I was. I was the perfect age. I for was this ten one. years old. Okay, and uh, I remember this being advertised on every single comic book I owned around this time. Like you could not get away from a little motion picture called Rocket Man. This is a vehicle for Harland Williams. Okay, now I need to stop <laughs> Will right here because I do not understand Harlan Williams getting a Disney film to star in. Like I looked, and he appeared on some improv shows. He did stand up, but. How is he hot enough for people to be like, oh, man, we loved him so much in Dumb and Dumber a couple years ago when he did that scene where he drank the piss? He needs his own movie. Yeah, in the DMs, Justin and I were doing some deep research into Harland Williams to to figure out how did this happen? What, what had he done? I was thinking... Was he on The Tonight Show or something? Was he on Letterman? Did he just have consistent spots somewhere? Was he was he a cast member on Mad TV? I can't remember. He appeared on one episode of Mad TV. Okay, that's not enough, though. No, it, and, it and it I couldn't comes, find any stand-up that he had done before. It all like, comes down to Dumb and Dumber, I guess. Yeah. Like, the, the Farleys and maybe Jim Carrey were working behind the scenes to say, this guy's the next big thing. So I did discover that the casting agent of Dumb and Dumber... Also, we're the casting agents on Rocket Man. Okay. So there is a connection there. I'm just going to say, looking at Harlan Williams' filmography, there was a period of two or three years 
where for some reason, I guess just on the strength of one scene in Dumb and Dumber, he was hot. Like he was in Down Periscope. Okay. Everybody was in Down Periscope, though. No, get this, though. He was in Wag the Dog. That's a big get for Harlan Williams. Now, people don't know who Harlan Williams is. He was in There's Something About Mary. He's very funny in Something About Mary. Yeah. Seven Minute Abs. Half Baked. He mm-hmm. was in that, too. Later, he was in uh, The Whole Nine Yards. with Sorority Boys, another co-starring role. Sorority Boys, I guess, was his second big shot at it. Mm-hmm. But we're here. We're here to talk about rocket man like was harlan williams just really good in the room like did people just find him charismatic well, like i was certainly not good on the screen <laughs> recent comedies or stand-up that he's done and it's like real you know dad joke humor <laughs> like okay. it's nothing that i'm like ah yes this is a comedian with a point of view kind of like canadian jerry seinfeld in a way a rocket man is a quintessential post jim carrey wacky guy comedy oh boy you got a wacky guy he comes in he is wacky in every room that he's in and people look at at him and they say why is this man like this now i found an interview with harlan williams and he says that he could pick any script at the time that they were offering him george of the jungle but he picked rocket man because he said i can rewrite this make it my own make it more of a jerry lewis don not style comedy well there's some wisdom to that because Mm -hmm. he clearly did what jim carrey did with ace ventura which is like take a rock bottom script that is all you. You're the only thing. The thing rises or falls entirely on you. And if it works, if it works, that slot machine just keeps uh, shooting quarters at you. You don't find Harlan Williams' shtick in this movie funny, Will? Um... No. Did you see it when you were eight years old? I remember seeing it. So at my school, there was something called the before and after school program. So for kids where both parents worked and they couldn't pick them up after work, Mm -hmm. you went there until like five o'clock and then your parents came to pick you up and you did activities and it was it was daycare basically. About once a month, there'd be movie night and we did watch Rocket Man in that. And what I remembered from that viewing was the scene early on where he's parked in a parking spot, but he can't get out of the side because there are cars blocking his door. Yeah, that's shtick. That's funny, isn't it? And he's wacky and he's doing voices. I'll tell you, I liked anything when I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. Did not like this guy. <laughs> and it's classic Jim Carrey shtick, but you know... You need to scientifically look at both of them and be like, why is this guy, you know, not funny? Like in this movie, he is just aggravating in your face. There's nothing concrete he can like connect with. Yeah, this is a very difficult question. And there are a lot of people who would tell you that Jim Carrey's not funny. Mm-hmm. So it's all subjective. A lot of people would tell you that Harlan Williams is hilarious. Those people were eight years old when this movie came out. I will say that with Ace Ventura, which is a questionable film in many ways, mm-hmm. uh, and we all know the way that it's questionable. But with that movie, I guess it is a more consistent character. There's a a more finely tuned internal logic to the way that Ace behaves. He also has more precision in the way that he works. Think of the scene where he's like in slow motion being hit and then rewinding. Well... Yeah, I think Jim Carrey's a funnier comic. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just better with his body, with his face, with his voice. He's a he's a powerhouse. Mm-hmm. Like, that rewinding scene, just the way he's able to manipulate his body is almost superhuman. While Harlan Williams... He's just a guy. Yeah, he's just a guy. Like, there's a scene where they're in isolation chamber, and it's that classic, like, all right, let's give the comedian free reign to do shtick. And it's just like Harlan Williams screaming for five minutes. Uh, okay, I don't know if you guys need to know the plot, but he plays a, a Dumb dumb who goes to space. It's Deep Space Homer. It's basically. a plot of Deep Space Homer. That's all it is. Yes. That's all you need to know. And during the scene where they announce who's going to go on the big space mission and they say his name, this was a big trailer moment. Harlan Williams starts screaming and squealing and going, ha! 
But people love this, Will. People, when I posted this on Twitter, people were like, I love that moment where he screamed. People come up to Harlan Williams in the street to tell them how much they love that moment. Well, I'm glad they all like it. Yes. I, I truly am. I don't Just get Just that stone face like me, Buster Keaton watching this movie. To me, that scene, there's nothing funny about it. There's no intrinsic humor. And there's no intrinsic humor to most of this movie. Yes. I mean, but what about the scene where he farts in his suit? <laughs> yeah, hilarious. Good fart joke. Yeah. William Sadler, he's the one who's selling that joke. The poor straight man trapped with him. I feel bad for everybody who has to share a scene with Harlan Bo Williams. Bo Bridges giving a serious performance in this movie. Okay, I did a double take <laughs> when his mother is played by Shelley Duvall. Uncredited in the film. Do you I'm, think she saw the final cut and she's like, get my name off of this? I think she worked with Stanley Kubrick for. 15 months and she was like that was a very hard experience but i'm gonna keep acting and then she did one day with harlan <laughs> williams and was like i'm retired i will never act again people will argue but there's chimpanzee humor in this will don't you love that i can get chimpanzee humor anywhere and also i'm a gorilla humor man get that chimpanzee <laughs> out of here they're gonna rip your lips off and your eyelids oh justin's joking i love all monkeys yeah uh, rocket man definitely not funny aggressive in that classic 90s style way that i always think of flubber like that disney like Look how funny this is! I miss this. I actually don't miss it, but I just needed a way to transition to this statement, which is the observation that they don't make wacky guy comedies anymore. No, they this don't. This was such a huge boom of just a guy <laughs> goes into a room and is wacky. Harlan Williams dug that grave and poured dirt over it. Why don't they make movies like that? Do we just not have funny men anymore? Do we not have wackiness Irony. anymore? Irony. It poisoned everything, Will. You can't have the big funny person because, you know, you have to be above it. It's true. Now we have L.A. alt comics who riff. Judd Apatow destroyed comedy. Did that just happen? Yeah. Shit like that. It's all that. It's all that. <laughs> no, thank you. We need to bring Harlan Williams back. Him and Tom Green. Oh, we should point out Harlan Williams also co-starred in Freddy Got Fingered. And Rocket Man, if you look at it askew, even though it's not its intention, it's almost as aggressively anti-comedy as <laughs> Freddy Got Fingered. Well, I'll just say if Harlan Williams is listening to this, and I'm sure he is, I'm sure. <laughs> He's got Rocket Man on his notices or Harlan Williams. I, I just want to say that I love Freddy Got Fingered. I love his participation. The <laughs> scene where he breaks his ankle on the half pipe and, <laughs> and tom green is licking his exposed bone makes me laugh every time i think about hilarious. it hilarious he is in the comedy hall of fame just for that anyway harlan williams is canadian but nothing is more canadian okay warning people oh my god like you probably have no idea what this is even though this man was a big hit in america enough of a big hit to tour there red green is a character played by a comedian and actor named Steve Smith. Red Green is, imagine Tim Allen meets Bob and Doug McKenzie. He was a character who's like an outdoorsman, a very stereotypical Canadian character, an outdoorsman who like makes stuff with duct tape and he talks kind of like this. And on his show, The Red Green Show, which ran for like a decade and also played on PBS in the United States. It had almost 300 episodes. Uh, it, would, it would be him at his lodge, called Possum Lodge, where he'd be surrounded by eccentric outdoorsmen, and they would do shtick and comedy about the great outdoors and about being Canadian, and he had catchphrases like, if the women don't find you handsome, they should at least find you handy. Or he would also say, uh, keep your stick on the ice. That's basically what it was. And he also had a wacky nephew, played by Patrick McKenna, named Harold. And Harold is a bit of a simple jack. <laughs> He's, uh... A Jerry Lewis, if you will. Yeah, he definitely does some Jerry Lewis shtick. He's a beta man has a bit more of a liberal bent, I'd say. He's talking about environmental issues, that kind of thing. But he also does a lot of shtick. He's, he's like 
I'm wacky and he's blah, 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 and, you know, blah, awful. Yeah. And on that show, Red Green would like come out and he would host it and he would say, well, folks, here's what's happening at Possum Lodge this week. And uh, now I'm going to show you how to make something out of it. It was tape. a pretty much tool time on Home Improvement yeah. where Red Green would talk directly to the camera. You'd have an audience laughing, but there would also be skits and like cutaways and That's stuff right. like that. Yeah. Tool time, but Canadian is how I would describe it. <laughs> it's like, let's get all of the sitcom, you know, Home Improvement stuff out of here. Let's just... People just want tool time. Frankly, good idea. And if you're Canadian, Red Green played all the time. We looked today. I could not believe it played on YTV, the kids channel. It was inescapable. I never liked Red Green, <laughs> yeah. and I probably saw half of it. <laughs> <laughs> because we've talked about this before. These Canadian TV channels had to put out Canadian content, and they did the lowest effort thing they could, which was Red Green. I was sitting here watching this movie, which we'll get to with Justin, and I kept like dropping references to the show, and he was like, how do you remember all this stuff? It's like, I'm not proud that I remember all this. I just saw it so much. I could not remember anything about Red Green. I think that I tried to escape it the second that it came up on screen. <laughs> like, turn off the comedy network, flip over to uh, space or something like that to it watch some so, shitty movie. It was so different in the 90s back when we had a monoculture because you have to remember there was TV and that was it. That's all you had. There was TV and I guess you could go play outside in your backyard. <laughs> yeah. That's if you it. have a backyard. If you have a backyard, probably not, though. That's all there was. You didn't have your phone. You didn't have a million channels. You had like... We had Red Green. We had Canadian Air Farce. And this hour is 22 minutes. So, by the way, when you're a kid, most of the TV is for grownups. Mm -hmm. And this is something that, while not for kids, is certainly something that a kid could watch and it doesn't go over their head. If you squint hard enough, you could maybe think it's home improvement with <laughs> a little bit of earnest i guess well he's got a voice like earnest yeah he does but red green's like cool as a cucumber he's like he's like Con he sucks man he's like connery he bond yeah. <laughs> like i uh, have no memory like i said of watching a full episode of red green show i know his face and watching him in this movie he seemed to want to be anywhere else than in this film i agree so the movie is called duct tape forever it came out in 2002 this movie <laughs> At the height of red green fever this movie played in every multiplex in Canada. Like I joke with Will, I'm sure you could go back and find multiple issues of like the Toronto Star, the leading newspaper of like Red Green and Harold like back to back with their arms crossed. And it says like Red Green takes over America. I mean, I know that you could because I was reading the Toronto Star Entertainment section at the time. I remember the hype around this movie. <laughs> oh my God. I remember this movie had TV commercials, you know, hockey Night in Canada. Every channel was blasting commercials for this movie. And I remember the high points from those commercials. Red green on the vibrating bed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And when it happened, I was like, well, that's it, Will? That's the vibrating bed segment? We started watching this movie and I was hyping Justin out. There's a scene that was in all the commercials with the vibrating bed. <laughs> yeah, and it's just red green in the bed going like, whoa, Get turn that up. Bed. <laughs> The audience, though, when they saw it in theater, they were going wild. So as we said, the Red Green show was like a hosted show where he would talk to the camera and there'd be an audience and be like, well, here's what's happening at Possum Lodge. This doesn't have any of that meta element. So take out everything people know about Red Green. This is just set at a lodge. <laughs> yes. It has the usual plot. This movie pilfers shamelessly from every bad comedy of the time. Or good comedies like Dumb and Dumber. That's true. It's the evil developer wants to take over Possum Lodge and the boys 
need to raise $10,000 to save the lodge so that the evil developer doesn't get it. And the way they're going to do it is there's a duct tape competition in Minnesota, and they are going to win third prize with a duct tape sculpture of a big goose. And they need to do that in 10 days. So they're on the road. They're on a road trip. Red and his nephew, Harold, who is 45 years old and acts like Pee Wee Herman, meets Jerry Lewis. But he's also like six foot four. I don't know. He's just a very awkward and unpleasant screen presence. I mean, speaking of unpleasant screen presences, Red Green himself, played by Steve Smith, who has done nothing else other than Red Green. He's an older man, a man of a certain age. He's got big gray beard and he wears flannel and he's got red suspenders. And he's kind of like the Andy Griffith to the Don Knotts that is Harold. You know, he's the straight man. He's the calm at the center of the storm. He has a Bressonian screen presence. <laughs> yeah, there's some shots where it's just the back of his head listening to someone talk. And I was like, did they get like a cardboard standee of Red Green? <laughs> Like, he ain't moving. We've said before that the whole reason the Three Stooges work is because Larry is there. Larry's not funny, but if you didn't have the third guy, it would just be a mean guy being mean to a funny fat guy. Mm -hmm. Well, in this movie... We have a guy who's mean to an unfunny guy (laughs) who looks like he needs help. (laughs) Yeah, a man who seems to have some challenges. I think it's it's fair to say. And the movie itself is everything you can do wrong trying to take a TV phenomenon to the screen. You break the format. You have a main character who doesn't want to be there doesn't want to be doing anything and you also have him narrate the entire film uh, what i did like about the movie is that there was no romantic subplot that's true i was kind of missing it because <laughs> yeah. scenes were like three to ten times longer than they should be there was a scene where they're in a motel and they keep cutting back into the motel <laughs> and will was like oh it's no exit i guess we're never gonna leave this place as you said too that motel set was very lynchian as well because it, it felt like a location from eraser head the squalor was real this movie has this dingy look to it it's just it just looks like a badly lit canadian movie from the early 2000s and i mean it has all of the hilarious stuff that people love like red green being like they're gonna build a center for just women we can't have that they're against what we believe in i was trying to figure out i mean this is he's not- a libertarian we already decided <laughs> yeah this. he's a libertarian but it's like i never really stopped to think what is possum lodge i figured it <laughs> I figured it's just like a country club for men but it might be a militia <laughs> they seem to be all living there as well i know <laughs> They have no homes to go to. I thought from the old show, the Red Green show, I thought that it was like, these are weekend warriors. These are guys who work in the city and then they come to the lodge on the weekend and, you know, they all do handyman shit and they all have sex with each other. And then they come back to the town during the day and they see their wives. But... I mean, I don't know. It seems to be they all. It seems to be a home for people who have who have <laughs> problems. Yes. Yeah, uh, I did enjoy the end of this movie. Had the no, villains, you didn't. <laughs> had the villains trying to murder Red Green uh, and Harold with a shotgun. Okay, so getting back to the plot, Red and Harold. Are, I know people are on the edge of their seat, like, how are they going to win this competition? Red and Harold are on the road. They're driving their big goose sculpture to the United States, and of course, they have many adventures. They meet many friends along the way. Not not a single laugh. <laughs> Every scene just is dead on arrival. There's a scene where Red meets like a ranger friend. He's lonely in the woods, and that's the joke. It's just that's that he's the only joke. He's just so happy to see Red because he's lonely. That's the only joke. But eventually, the evil industrialist all attempts to stop these guys from going to the competition have failed. So the evil industrialist himself is on the run. He's like shooting them with a gun. <laughs> yeah. This man who's an oligarch, presumably, is chasing them, shooting them, and 
remember, they're, uh, what am I doing? A psych. I was going to poke more logical holes in this movie. But... How did this get made? Yeah, exactly. Like, why am I digging up Duct Tape Forever? A movie that is no. We, we had to dig this movie up, too. This like... movie is nowhere on the internet. I remembered that I had this movie on a hard drive from 10 years ago. It was like, I'm getting the Ark of the Covenant out. Will had to go into the warehouse, pull it out. And that's what we watched. I couldn't believe it's not on, like, CBC Gem or something like that. Nobody, it's nowhere. Nobody wants to watch this movie. You said the Toronto Public Library did not have a copy of this film. It's one of those films that this you look on. This movie was made for the Toronto Public Library if to you have. you look it. on Amazon, the DVDs are selling for $200. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, you could maybe buy it directly from Red Green himself. He has an official website. Looks like it was made in GeoCities in 1999. And he's still touring, by the way. He did a special in 2021. Jesus. Uh, do you think that politics are, you know, not problematic at this point? You know, I don't know because he played to a PBS audience in the US. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure he has a conservative following, but I think he also just has like a dad joke following. Yeah, dad joke. That's probably the main people who are paying for him or show up at his shows. I think he, he makes a few politically charged comments throughout Duct Tape Forever, but it was a it was a simpler time. It was a gentler time. I don't think, I think you would probably move away from that material now. Me and Will, we were just wishing we could have been in the audience, I assume, of the Tiff Gala presentation of Duct Tape Forever. <laughs> Surrounded by bankers and CBC employees listening to them bust a gut at Red's shenanigans. I mean, okay, Red Green is an awful screen presence. <laughs> he seems to be so uncomfortable on screen. Oh, God. It's like, I think he, well, I actually know he thinks he's Clint Eastwood because there's a whole Clint Eastwood parody, but I think that's what he thinks he's doing. <laughs> I he's love doing that Clint like, Eastwood parody because I have never heard a cheaper take on the Inyo Morricone theme ever. Yeah, it's like if you had a keyboard in the 90s, an electric keyboard, and there was a button on it that said Western theme. Oh, actually, the whole musical soundtrack of this film <laughs> it just sounds like a casio keyboard from 1996 this movie is fucking horrible and this movie doesn't even have the decency to give us some bloops at the end well it did after the credits well that was a little end tag it gave us fans. one bloop yeah, one bloop that's not enough so anyway harold learns to believe in himself <laughs> He's still going through the plot. <laughs> the big duct tape goose that they make flies. And me and Will were like, and that's not fair. It's not a show off competition. It's a statue competition. I didn't see this movie theatrically, but I can you imagine you could see an, a movie from the United States? Yes. You could have seen a real movie, but instead, there are people who went to see this. Who paid full ticket price. <laughs> I'm sure it opened in like 2,000 screens in Canada. I, rem- I remember it. It was everywhere. Well, let's go to the U of T archives. I'm sure they have a print of Duct Tape Forever <laughs> laser blast screening coming your way. Let's do a big, important Cinema Club fan event where we play a 35 millimeter print of Duct Tape Forever. <laughs> Followed by Rocket Man. Let's and do it. All the stars will show up. So... Folks, there it is. Canadian comedy. These are some Canadian comedy films that didn't quite make it. And we'll be back next week with probably a more substantial topic. I mean, listen, we didn't even talk about Martin Short, right? He was a big star. He had big starring movies. I don't think Martin Short quite qualifies because I think I think he became a star. He did. But what I mean, John Candy did, too. But whatever. Yeah, but John Candy has Uncle Buck. You mentioned (laughs) Martin Short's Father of the Bride. Yeah. I've never seen it. And That's he, kind of his big he's one. He's got Inner Space as well, but That's that was right. not a hit. Yeah, so. but he had a run of movies like Pure Lock, Captain Ron, Three Fugitives. I, <laughs> I saw them all when I was a kid. 
<laughs> you poor Clifford. son of a bitch. Clifford, for I mean, Clifford God's is sake. great, yeah. yeah. But Clifford is his dirty work. That's right. And we should point out that the director of Going Berserk also directed a Norm Macdonald stand-up special. Yeah, so he he did some good stuff yeah, in addition. He, he, he paid for the sins that he delivered upon his audiences. All right. So as per usual, you can send us letters at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. Our first letter is from Jabril Mahmoud. And he goes, hey guys, love the pod. It's like an auditory film school. Do you have any favorite memoirs you'd recommend? Recommend. Actors, comics, screenwriters, directors. Keep up the great work, Jabril. Oh boy, uh, there are lots that I like, even more that I don't like that much. Certainly, biographies are often better than memoirs. I agree. Biographies are usually much better than memoirs. If I'm reading a memoir, I always want it to be of like either like a hack or someone that wasn't that successful because he's not trying to paint a very you know smooth picture of their career. And you also get details that you will never hear anywhere else. So, what's an example of that for you? There's one called Studio Affairs: My Life as a Film Director director by a guy named Vincent Sherman. You have never heard of this person because if you look at his filmography and he directed a lot, none of them are any like stone cold classics. But I picked this book up, flipped it at the back and it said, wow, what a great book, Bertrand Tavernier. And I was like, well, I got to get it because of that. So just like literally the classic journeyman going through his career and, you know, the difficulties you face or what you do to get the day done. And that's the kind of stuff that I really enjoy. Well, there are some books that I like because, you know, they have a lot of fun stories in them. They're not necessarily probing memories memoirs, but like something like John Waters' Shock Value. It's just a great compendium of all the official John Waters stories, mm-hmm. you know? And and it's good to have them between the pages of a book. Then there are other memoirs that I, I kind of like them because they're almost like, well, okay, like let's take Kinski Uncut by Ooh. Klaus Kinski. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. A vile book, but like compelling. Mm-hmm. I mean, just an extraordinary dispatch from a diseased mind. Or, uh, Raw talent by the porn star Jerry Butler. You will rarely see such a such a raw view of the porn industry than that book. We've talked about this book, I think, previously, but White Horse Black Hat by C. Jack Lewis is a great book because it's not only a memoir of a guy who is mostly famous for writing articles in gun magazines. Uh, he also wrote The Amazing Transparent Man, uh, King of the Bullwhip, but he uses his memoir to just document the lives of every C-bit to Z-grade cowboy actor that he ran into. Even Ed Wood makes a couple appearances in the book as well. Oh, well, speaking of Ed Wood, I kind of like his book Hollywood Rat Race. (laughs) That's true. Which is his how-to manual for surviving in Hollywood that's also just kind of a weird glimpse into his brain. Recently, Confessions of a Puppet Master came out, the Charles Band uh, memoir. And what I liked about this one is that Charles Band is famous as a bullshit artist, but it's actually like really sad and it ends with him like being arrested at a convention, having to live out of his girlfriend's apartment. So it's not like him going, I did everything right. He admits to some wrongdoing in the book. I think the last one I'll mention is Lulu in Hollywood by Louise Brooks, which is a collection of essays by the famous silent film actress talking about people that she knew, but in doing so, a picture emerges of her own turbulent life and career. And she's such a great writer, too. Just a terrific prose writer. I'm also a fan of Nice Guys Don't Work in Hollywood, which is a memoir written by Curtis Harrington, who's a director who had an amazing career. Like, he worked in Paris, he worked with Kenneth Anger, he worked for Roger Corman, and he eventually became a TV movie director. And his thing was, like, he liked to work with the most, like, washed-up stars that he could put in his movies. And so his films are filled with that kind of stuff even though that, you know, uh, some of them are not so hot. But Curtis Harrington was also a big mentor to uh, David Dakota and uh, David Del Vale, who are like now the ultimate Hollywood historians these days. 
So our next letter is from Matt Holler, and he goes, Dear Justin and Will, I recently listened to your WC Fields episode and was quite struck by Will's personal connection with Fields, being how much Fields reminds Will of his grandfather, because I have almost the exact same relationship with Fields. My grandfather was the one who introduced me to the actor, his favorite comedian, showing me the golf specialist, which I found painfully unfunny. <laughs> but as time has gone on, I realize how much of my grandfather's eccentric personality Fields embodies, right down to the voice. And through that, I have grown appreciation for Fields. My grandfather is still alive, but I know that you he won't be in my life forever, so it's nice knowing that his personality will stay fresh in my memory whenever I watch a W.C. Fields film. Will, thank you for sharing. I like the idea that there are still W.C. Fields-like personalities that are grandfathers out there, because <laughs> you would have think that, you know, they would have been phased out by this point. As for episode recommendations, I would love to hear one on Terrence Davies. I recently completed his filmography, and he has solidified his spot as my favorite director. With films so embedded in his own life and an incredibly impressionistic style, there's so much room for a great conversation. I would also love to hear episodes on Nabuhiko Obayashi, that's the director of Haosu, and though it may be a broad subject, jazz on film. Are you a jazz man, Will? I mean, you love the jazz man <laughs> portrayed Bill by Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal's character, yes. <laughs> How do we not do that in comedy minds? Billy Crystal was sitting right there and I had brought him up. Yeah, I hate Billy Crystal. I, I hope to never see his face again. But anyway, uh, jazz, I mean... That I, is the most emotion anyone has shown for <laughs> Billy Crystal in the last decade. I, I, I'm not a jazz guy to be honest I'm yeah it would be very difficult for me to talk about because like i literally have no place i can jump off from i'd be curious to know like what are what are the jazz films uh bertin tavernier's round midnight is uh, definitely one of the uh, jazz films bird by clint eastwood mm -hmm. or am i or am i off track the other topics i like mm -hmm. yeah should do those so uh, there's a ps which uh, I'm happy to see this. You know, people always say, you know, we introduced them to Edgar G. Elmer and Detour. This is the first person thanking us for this. Or maybe not the first, but I'm glad to see it. Thank you for introducing me to Luc Moulet. <laughs> I've become a big fan after Le Siege de l'Alcazar and recently watched Death Glamour, which was very funny. The first image of Moulet in that horrible wig and fake beard will never not make me laugh. I've heard some Moulet fans, people who were turned on to Moulet because of us. It so. feels like suddenly uh, everyone has Moulet fever on Twitter. Remember like a couple months? Months after we talked about it. I mean, you can't you can't escape Moulet fever. <laughs> As opposed to before, where literally Will was like, who? Who are you talking about? <laughs> because he gets so little talk. Someone pointed out that MoMA is doing a retrospective on the forgotten French New Wave, and Nick Moulet is nowhere to be seen. I think that's appropriate. He needs to be forgotten. He needs to be the underdog even among the forgotten. He's too mainstream for yeah. the uh, uh, forgotten French New Wave. Well, thank you very much for the letter, Matt. And as per usual, you can send us letters on Porn Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing on the Patreon this week, Will? Well, we both saw the new Nicolas Cage film, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about Cage a little bit. Mm -hmm. We did an episode on Cage, I don't know, a couple years ago. And he's an evergreen well to mix my metaphors of discussion. Speaking of episodes that people listen to because they see the title and they go, oh, I know that person. It's sellout months coming up on the Important Cinema Club. We're almost at our 300th episode. I think we can get 600 patrons by the time oh. we hit 300 that's only oh boy 80 away so it'd be like the biggest jump that we've ever had in important cinema club history well i don't think we're gonna get it but anyway no, will we're gonna get it we're gonna get it anyway you're right comedy month is over now we are into sellout month we are doing only hugely popular topics on the podcast so next week we're talking about somebody who you definitely know 
Yes, folks, it's Meryl Streep. Yeah, people have asked, when's the Meryl Streep episode coming? Well, it's arriving. Let's do it. Meryl Streep. <laughs> Let's take a big bite of that juicy ham. And we love Meryl Streep, don't we? We just, we're lining up to see Florence Foster Jenkins. We want to see The Post. We want to see The Iron Lady. We're not going to talk about those movies, though. We're going to talk about Sophie's Choice, at the very least. I've never seen it. Yeah, I feel like it's a movie You're no sighing. one really reaches on the shelf to watch Sophie's Choice, do they? Maybe someone does. <laughs> I don't know. Is there a criterion of Sophie's Choice? I don't even really know what the reputation of Sophie's Choice is. I know she won the Oscar for it. I don't know if it's really considered a good movie. Will she get nominated for her appearance on this podcast? I (laughs) I mean, if it's a rough year, maybe. Maybe. So we're going to talk about that. We'll probably watch Mm She-Devil because it's 99 minutes. Yeah, let's be honest that I was like, She-Devil and Will was like, eh. And I'm like, out of Africa? Will's like, no! (laughs) Two hours and 41 minutes. So there are those two at the very least and maybe we're going to watch another one too. Like, maybe we'll have to Devil Wears Prada for the first time, probably, since I saw it in theaters. Anyway, Meryl Streep, many consider her the greatest actress of all time. What do you think we should sell out for this month? We have some ideas, but we'd like to hear from you. We're not doing Kubrick. We're not doing Kubrick. He will forever be untouchable. Yes. Uh, And Martin Scorsese. We did an episode about Martin Scorsese, the cinephile. That's our Scorsese episode. That's our Scorsese episode, yeah. So, until next week, my name's Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. We would like to thank some new patron subscribers who include Lawrence Yolen, Luke Williams, Peter McDonald, Patrick McLanahan, and Mishka Jemsek. Thank you very much for becoming subscribers. We could not keep doing this without you. Folks, the movies are back. That's right. Summer blockbuster season is upon us. And it's getting started off with one that me and Will never thought we'd see in theaters. Another Martin Campbell film. Oh man, memory with Liam Neeson. (laughs) Can't wait for it. Uh, But folks, we're going to go... Look at what are some of the hits? What are some of the big blockbusters that are going to blow the doors off the multiplex? Some of the movies that you are definitely going to put on your shoes and pay $17 to see at a movie theater. You are legally obliged to go see Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And I hope you watch all those What If episodes or it won't make any sense. So I'm probably going to watch that one because... Uh, Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi back in the director's chair, first time in a decade. And uh, apparently the whole movie was reshot without him, so... (laughs) Let's be honest, any of the sequences were be storyboard artists and previs guys trying to do their best Sam Raimi impersonation. So what we're going to be looking for are tiny little crumbs of Sam Raimi's usual sense of humor. We're going to be looking out for the Bruce Campbell cameo. He has one. We're going to be looking out, hopefully, for a Ted Raimi cameo. There's the a Bob's re- Burgers movie? You're excited for that, right? Uh, there's a remake of Firestarter starring Zac Efron. Uh, Downton Abbey, A New Era. Oh, come on. Where are the fucking blockbusters? I got to here. Jurassic World Dominion. Oh, man. So, Chris Pratt's back sam neal jeff goldblum laura dern the whole gang's back i don't really care no i don't really care okay here's one that i do care about top gun maverick i don't care about top gun maverick okay listen i know i don't like top gun i've gone through this i don't like top gun either but what i do like is tom cruise but the director the director's the worst he's the guy who did tron legacy and that miles teller firefighter movie and oblivion the tom cruise movie he has not made one good movie i'm excited for this movie because it's not old top gun it's it's Tom Cruise looking like Tim Heidecker now <laughs> yes. as Decker. I will say, supposedly, Chris McQuarrie stepped in and helped with some reshoots and some script rewrites. Is that so? Well, I think we're going to get some uh, cool aerial stunts. He'll uh, be flying that plane himself. Are you excited for the movie 
that is based on the real man that inspired the toy. Yes, I'm speaking of Lightyear. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not three years old. I will not be seeing Lightyear. Uh, all right. What else? Man, that's it for June. There's nothing this year. Okay, I'm in July and we've got Elvis, the new Baz Luhrmann joint starring Tom Hanks as Colonel Tom Parker and uh, some some kid as Elvis. If we were in a healthier movie climate i would not be excited for baz Luhrmann's elvis but i'm looking for crumbs i'm looking for anything that reminds me of movies and i look at the name baz Luhrmann and i say well at least at least he's got a style i'm gonna go out i'm gonna listen to big music and big sounds i'm gonna look at tom hanks ham it up oh he's hamming in it. a fat suit <laughs> yes that's true i mean that elvis guy he's also gonna be in you know a suit for overweight men because it looks like it's gonna be a full life of elvis what are you doing Baz? one thing you don't do i'm psyched okay thor love and thunder is that coming out in july july 8th wow thor is back folks (laughs) i want to see it i like that stuff jordan peele movie uh, has a new movie coming out yeah that that's fine uh i saw a trailer for bullet train where brad pitt looks fucking 75 years old (laughs) i mean he is i mean let's get some new movie stars folks (laughs) there is no movie stars august 5th 2022 here's the movie of the summer Untitled WB event film. (laughs) I don't think this list has been updated in a while. So that's uh, basically it for the summer blockbusters. Lots to look forward to. The movies are back.